0: It's great to be back with you, and to see many of you again, and it's exciting to see a lot of new faces too. Uh, we're, it's a privilege for me to be here and, and for us to be able to worship with you and, and for me to be able to bring the word to you this morning. Uh, Redeemer consistently remains in our prayers as we get the blast and read it and see what the Lord's doing through you. We're in Psalm 8 this morning, so I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, and that can be found on page 386 of your pew Bible. And I ask you to please give attention to God's holy word. For the director of music, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas." O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you praise and we give you thanks, and we ask that you would come to us by your Holy Spirit, that we may see your Son, Jesus Christ, and know him better. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. New Horizons uh, is NASA's first mission to the planet Pluto, and it launched back in 2006, and you may have seen this past July, that nine years later, having traveled almost three billion miles, New Horizons finally encountered Pluto. And when this happened, being curious, of course, I went to the New Horizons mission website uh, to find out a little more about it. Uh, First, the goal of New Horizons. And this is the stated goal on the mission website. The overarching goal is basically to understand how Pluto, uh, this kind of mysterious icy dwarf planet on the outer reaches of our solar system, to see how it fits in with the rest of our solar system, how it fits in with these inner rocky planets of Earth, Mars, Venus, and Mercury, and see how it fits in with those outer gas giants of Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. But, you know, as I was reading on the website and, and exploring, I, I quickly realized that what truly compels New Horizons and missions like it is not mere curiosity for scientific data. And let me read you some of these uh, frequently asked questions and fun facts, and I think you'll see what I mean. These are from the website. What would Earth look like from Pluto? What would a human being see on Pluto? Is there enough light to read a book on Pluto? The answer is yes, by the way. What would I weigh on Pluto? And good news just 7% of your body weight here on Earth. (laughs) Would I be able to ski? On Pluto. There were a lot of skiing questions, interestingly. <laughs> uh, are there any good hills? How are the snow conditions? And uh, they're not quite sure yet. Uh, this one's for some of you young people. Does a human being have enough energy to jump into orbit around Pluto? And uh, the answer is no, by the way. Uh, this one's for the parents. How much does it cost? Uh, We have uh, questions for the cynics out there. Why even send a mission to Pluto? What's the point? And, of course, you know the top question. Could there be life on Pluto? And right now they're saying unlikely. You can see from those questions that, that New Horizons is not just about understanding how Pluto fits in. No, in all of those questions, what are we doing? We're relating ourselves to it. You see, New Horizons is ultimately about understanding how we fit in, how we as human beings fit in. What is our place in the universe? How do we fit in? And that's essentially the question that David is asking so many years ago, the question that is at the heart of this psalm, this hymn of praise. As David explores in the way that he could and the way that we all still can, By gazing at the starlit night sky. And as he he gazes and as he considers, he asks this question in verse 3 When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man that you care for him? How do we fit into the vastness of this universe? What is our place? For King David, and for us, this isn't simply an intellectual question, is it? As if it were a a seminar or the title of a Sunday school class, what is humanity? Uh, No, this is an existential question. This is a question we feel. This is a question we ask when we look at the world around us and and everything that is happening, and uh, we feel overwhelmed. We can feel small insignificant, and dwarfed by the realities of life. When we look around, and perhaps as the excitement of and the prospects for change in a new year begin to fade, when you examine your life and realize it's still lacking direction or purpose or meaning. This is a question we ask when when we have a moment of quiet in the, the midst of all the busyness of life and we sense restlessness and discontentment. Where do I fit in? What's my place? And yet, in this psalm, David is feeling the question, and he's asking this question not with fear or with uncertainty, but with awe and with wonder and with amazement because he's looking to his Creator I want us to see this morning that this hymn of praise to the Creator lifts us out of our feelings of smallness, of insignificance, of meaninglessness, of purposelessness, so that you can know, just as David did, that the Creator of this vast universe, quite simply, that He cares for you, to know that the Creator cares for you. So how can you know personally the Creator's care in your own life? Well, let's begin in verse 3 with this question. We're going to work our way out. First, we see the Creator's care because He has carefully set you into place. He set you into place. Look at verse 3 with me. Again, the question. David says, When I consider the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. He uses this beautiful metaphor to describe God's creative work. It's the work not of his hand, not of his arm, but of what? His fingers. The work of his fingers. Which, first of all, shows us the greatness of God. David is saying that the vastness of this universe is tiny compared to God, it's as if it was between his fingers. And if you think about it, how much more astounding should this metaphor be for us today? Because we know so much more than David did. We know that when we gaze into the night sky, many of what actually look like stars are what? Galaxies. And there are over 100 billion galaxies that we know of, each containing around 100 billion stars. I mean, the numbers just they begin to not mean anything anymore. They're just so big which means that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. Now think about it. New Horizons now has traveled almost 10 years, 3 billion miles and counting, and it hasn't even made it out of our solar system. That's one star out of 100 billion galaxies with 100 billion stars each. And yet, the psalm is saying that all of this vastness, this scary big universe, is like a grain of sand in the fingers of God. He is a great creator. But you know, in this metaphor, we also see not only his greatness, but his goodness. Because think about the metaphor. If this scary big universe is not in the fingers of God, what does that mean? What's the alternative if it's not in the fingers of God? Well, then David's question becomes not one of all, but of terror. Think about it. If this universe is all there is, if it came into being on its own, if it was an accident, then what's the answer to the question? What is man? What's our place? How do we fit in? Well, we're nothing. We are, as Carl Sagan famously wrote, small, inconsequential, a thin film of life on an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being that ever was, all of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions and ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every supreme leader, Every superstar, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a speck of dust, suspended in a sunbeam, a fraction of a dot, an obscurity in all of this vastness. And you know what? If the universe is not in the fingers of God, then he's right. We are insignificant. We are without purpose or meaning in life. But then how does... Sagan attempt to apply this? Well, he goes on to say, this underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and cherish the only home we've ever known. Why? (laughs) If you're insignificant, if I'm insignificant, then what difference does it make if I treat you with kindness or not? If the earth is an obscurity, if it's a speck of dust, then what difference does it make if I cherish it or not? And I think he would say, for the sake of survival, but why care about survival when it's all going to go to nothingness anyway? But if it's in the fingers of God, then that makes all the difference. Then considering the vastness of this universe shows us not only his greatness, but his goodness to us as well. Think about the metaphor to make it with his fingers means what? That he has carefully put it all together. He's put it together piece by piece with a plan and a purpose and and out of joy and love and delight in his creation. This is a picture of God the craftsman carefully fashioning his work. This is God the painter with a full palette of colors carefully brushing each shade into place. This is God the musician carefully arranging the score of the universe down to the very last note. It's the work of his fingers, carefully set into place. What is man then? How do we fit in? What's our place? Well, it means that we've been carefully set into place as well. And that's why David is in awe and in wonder and amazement, because he understands that if God, in his greatness and his goodness, is able to care for the vastness of this entire universe, then is he not able to care for you as well? You see, the logic of the Bible is so different than ours. The logic of the Bible is never, if God is so great, if he's so big, how could he possibly care about me? No, the logic of the Bible runs this way. If this great God who cares for this entire universe, can he not care for you as well? And this is the argument we find in Isaiah chapter 40. It's a chapter which so many of our songs come from, everlasting God being one of them. Isaiah chapter 40, the Lord says, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, the stars in the heavens. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The greatness of God. But then what's the implication? What does the Lord then ask his people? Why then do you say that your way is hidden from me? In other words, I number the stars, and so I, can, I number the hairs on your head. I've named the stars, and I've named you as well. Not one of them and not one of you is missing. You've been carefully set into place, and this is why this psalm can open with praise to God from from above the heavens, from all the angels on high, and yet also from the cry of a little baby. The Creator cares for you; He's carefully set you into place, and yet we see His care as we consider not only creation itself, but even more so, more especially when we consider what God says about his creation. So King David in the psalm considers God's goodness not only as he looks at the stars, but at the light of God's word. And if you look at the rest of the psalm, it is essentially a reflection. It's basically a meditation on the beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapter 1. In the account of creation. And from his meditation, we see that the Creator cares for you because he's given you a kingly commission. The Creator cares for you because he's given you a kingly commission. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Look at verse 5. You have made him a little lower than Elohim in the Hebrew, uh, some translations say God, some say heavenly beings or angels, but the, the point is the same. Human beings are not inconsequential. No, they are crowned with glory and honor. Even within the vastness of this universe, God has given you, has given humanity, a unique dignity, distinct from the rest of creation. He's made you royalty. Kings and queens made in the image of God with a unique responsibility to represent God, to rule over and care for the rest of creation, just as he rules over us. Verse 6, you have given him dominion or made him ruler over the works of your hands. You have put everything under his feet. And then he goes on to list the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish in the sea and I think about one of my favorite movies of all time, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The old one, of course. And at the end of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you remember after the the grand tour of the magical candy-making factory is over, Wonka takes little Charlie Bucket and his Grandpa Joe for a ride up in that great glass elevator, through the roof, up and out. And after some moments of admiring the city, Wonka leans in and asks, How did you like the chocolate factory, Charlie? Well, I think it's the most wonderful place in the whole world. Well, I'm very pleased to hear you say that, Charlie, because I'm giving it to you. What? Well, that's all right, isn't it? After all, who can I trust to run my factory and to tell all of my most precious candy-making secrets? And who can I trust to care for the Oompa Loompas? The factory is yours, Charlie. You can move in immediately. But but what happens to the rest, the whole family? I want you to bring them all. Uh, But Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after. That's essentially what this psalm is teaching us, that God has said to you, I've created this most wonderful place with you, the most wonderful of all. And with greatest pleasure, I'm giving it to you. I'm putting you in charge. After all, who else can I trust to run my world, to care for all the animals, to tend the gardens? Here's Eden. It's yours. You can move in immediately. Start there and work your way up and out. And of course, you'll need a family to help you. It's everything you could ever want. It's everything that you could ever dream of to live happily ever after. And I want us to just consider for a moment how wonderfully different this is from our typical attitudes and beliefs about nature What do we do? We tend to either worship nature by placing it on the same level as humanity or even above humanity, or on the other hand, we unthinkingly exploit nature for our own selfish ends. And yet, here's a picture of humanity distinct from the rest of creation and ruling over the rest of creation, but in a caring and thoughtful way and for the good and the flourishing of nature. Think of how wonderfully different this is from our typical attitudes and beliefs about our work. We tend to either worship work by trying to find our complete identity in it, and and seeking to find our ultimate happiness in finding that right career. But amazingly at the same time we also tend to view our work as a necessary evil to pay the bills and fund our leisure activities and, and our retirement. And yet, here is work that is good, that we've been made for, because we've been made by a God who works in joy and delight and love. And how wonderfully different this is from the way we typically view humanity, where we tend to either worship humanity, we obsess over celebrities or sports stars or or politicians, while at the same time we ignore those we feel are insignificant and treat them with disdain. And yet here we have all humanity made in the image of God with dignity, regardless of race, regardless of cultural background, regardless of social class, regardless of your life situations and the choices that you made to get there. With dignity, we're royalty. It's a wonderfully different picture, and yet we don't experience it, do we? We don't experience this glorious reality. It seems like pure imagination. Because here's this glorious picture of humanity ruling over creation, caring for the animals, nurturing the plants. But, but what do we actually experience Caitlin and I attempted our first garden this past fall. And it, everything was going very well. The plants were doing well. We'd already eaten broccoli and collards and and what else? Lettuce. Yeah, lots of good lettuce. and And everything was great. And then we were seeing our little cauliflowers coming up for the first time. And then we went out of town for a week. And, you know, I wasn't unrealistic. I wasn't overly optimistic. I thought, well, we may have a few things to deal with. You know, we may have a few plants that didn't make it. It was gone. I mean, it was devastated. It was so sad. There was nothing left. I mean, we can't even manage the squirrels, (laughs) much less all of creation, all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Forget about it. Our experience in life doesn't fit this psalm. For those in agriculture, there's famine or drought. In any work, machines break down. Relationships in the workplace break down. Eventually, our bodies break down. Because even this glorious hymn of praise, Psalm 8, that wonders at the glory of God in the created world, nonetheless, is sung in the reality of a fallen world. It's the beginning of a new year, so perhaps some of you are beginning to read through the Bible in a year or have some type of of plan for reading the Bible. And if you read through the beginning of the book of Psalms, you begin to notice how pretty much all of the psalms start sounding the same. Almost all of them at the beginning of the psalms are written by David. And most of them are what we call lament psalms. David crying out to God because of his enemies, crying out for deliverance at the hands of his enemies, crying out for deliverance from suffering in his own life, from the evil in the world and oppression of his people. And then you get to Psalm 8, and it's a great change of pace. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, this glorious hymn of praise. And yet, even this hymn of praise is sung in the context of a fallen world. If you look at verse 2, it's sung in the presence of enemies, of foes, the avenger, which is negative, by the way. Why? Why? Because David knows how the story continues. He's not only read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he's read Genesis chapter 3, where we find Adam and Eve, tempted by the enemy, choosing to believe that their all-powerful creator wasn't good. That he didn't really have their best interests in mind. That this magnificent honor, this special place that he gave them, wasn't enough. And rather than joyfully rule over the rest of creation under God, They wanted to take his place. And all of us, along with them, have decided to do the same. And so we've fallen under God's curse. God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." By God's grace, our royalty was not lost. But rather than represent God as we were meant to, we resist him. We still have that kingly commission, but now rather than fruitfulness, it's met with frustration and with pain. And ultimately, for all of us, death. So given the curse... And the corruption of the fall that we all experience, how then can you know, even in the midst of these things, that the Creator cares for you? Well, we learn from David's psalm that the caring Creator who's given us a kingly commission because of the curse and corruption of the fall has sent a surprising salvation. He sent a surprising salvation. Look again at verses 1 and 2. What is God's answer to the foe here? What is his answer to the enemy and to the avenger? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of children and infants, you have prepared praise or established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What in the world does that mean? You know, this is one of those places in the Bible where you're reading through, and you come to this verse and you're just, what in the world is going on here? And you kind of just skip to the next verse, you know, and keep reading. <laughs> where, where is this coming from? It seems out of place. What is David doing? What's his thought process here? Well, here's what he's doing. He's gone back to the beginning, back to creation. No, but he knows how the story moves forward from there. He knows the history Of his own people. And he sees time and time again the surprising way that God works in the world, the surprising way that God saves his people to reverse the curse of the fall. We've just sung Joy to the World, hopefully, this past Christmas season, and it's my favorite verse in any song of all time. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, to reverse the curse of the fall. Yes, the angels above, they declare my majesty and my glory and my power, but here is where I've established strength. Here is where my power is at work, out of the mouth of children and infants. In other words, through weakness. And David sees that time and time again in the story of God's people. Who does God choose time and time again? The younger son instead of the older son. Isaac instead of Ishmael. Jacob instead of Esau, Joseph rather than his older brothers. What nation did God use to bring his saving purposes to the world? Israel. Not exactly a world superpower. In fact, by all other considerations, a relatively insignificant nation in the empires of the ancient world at that time. And, you know, David's seen it in his own life. Remember who David is. Yes, he's God's anointed king, yet he's the baby of the family, the youngest of his brothers, and he's a lowly shepherd boy. God working through weakness. And how fitting it is, then, if you remember that Jesus recalled this very verse when he entered into Jerusalem on the week of his passion, not on a mighty steed, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. And who was it that was running to him? Not the religious leaders, not the the prominent politicians, but the blind and the lame who were running to him to be healed. And who was singing his praises? The little children, the babies, the infants, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And indeed, in Jesus Christ, the Creator has done the most surprising, the most astounding thing of all, to accomplish the greatest salvation of all. Not simply to be praised by the cry of a baby, but to become a baby himself. For the one who holds the vastness of this entire universe between his fingers to then be held in the arms of his mother Mary. And so the answer to David's question, what is man, ultimately is Jesus Christ. He is the perfect image of God. He's come to restore you, to restore humanity to the full dignity and royalty that we were meant to be. He's come to restore our dominion and rule over creation as it was meant to be. The Bible calls him the second Adam. Because he's come to succeed where the first Adam failed to fulfill this kingly commission that God has given to humanity. And yet, how does he accomplish it? Just as he rode into Jerusalem that day. Through weakness. The author of the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter 2 quotes this very psalm and puts it like this. We see Jesus, the one praised by the angels above the heavens, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus, to restore true humanity to us, took humanity on himself. He took on flesh and blood. He became like us in every way except for sin, becoming our brother, And through His death and His resurrection from the dead, all things have been put under His feet. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to Him. And because He is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters, we share in that inheritance. To have not just the beasts of the field, as David wrote, or the birds of the air, or the fish in the sea under our feet and our care, but all things, everything, the vastness of this universe, the new, creation in Christ. And yet again, as the author to the Hebrews says in that same chapter, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Him. We don't yet see it. We don't experience it. We don't see submission to Jesus Christ as Lord in every place and from every person. And and we look around and we see the overwhelming realities of the world around us. We we feel the frustrations in our own life, and our work, and our family. And we see the ugliness of sin still in our own hearts and the consequences that it brings. And we feel overwhelmed, small, insignificant, and dwarfed. But we do see Jesus, he says, which means that as it was for him... For you to be restored to your full royalty and rule over creation, it comes through weakness. Where is God at work, according to the psalm? Where do we see His strength conquering the enemy? Where do we see humanity being restored? Where do we see us entering in to our inheritance that awaits us? We see it in a small gathering on a Sunday morning singing the simplest of praise songs. You are the everlasting God. We see God at work when your child sings Jesus loves me before bedtime. We see God at work when you, the college student, when a professor dismisses the Creator and His Word with a smirk and a wave of the hand when you are unashamed to say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth when you, the medical student, are unashamed to affirm that the the amazing intricacies of the human body are there because an all-wise creator set them in place with his fingers. He's at work when you just simply keep working hard, when you give a gentle answer rather than a harsh word, in the conversations that will take place over lunch today, when you... Not all at once, it doesn't work that way. But little by little, degree by degree, are being transformed into the perfect image of Christ. When you, though your body may be breaking down day by day, you're being strengthened in your inner being. God is at work in the weakness and the foolishness of the gospel, the word of the cross. God looks at these, what the world sees as small and inconsequential and foolish, insignificant. And God says, it's in these places that I've established my strength. This is how I'm at work. This is how I'm bringing in that new creation. This is how I'm bringing you into your inheritance. It's in this way that I'm preparing for you a most wonderful place, a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And it gives me great pleasure to give it to you. And I'm putting you in charge. After all, who else can I trust to run my new world? A place where the wolf and the lamb will graze together and the lions will be tame. But I'm not just putting you in charge of the animals. But of all things, all things, the vastness of my universe, new horizons, up and out more than you could ever dream of. And best of all, you will be my people and I will be your God. Let us say with David, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He cares for you. Let's pray. Our Father, our Creator, our Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the beauty of your creation, for your majesty and your glory, and for your grace to save us, that we might sing your praises, that we might know you, that we might live with you in the new creation, with Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who made it possible for all eternity. Lord, as we go out from this place, Work this word of grace into our hearts, that we may show it to others, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.